Greetings and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I am Jacob Elwert, Assistant Professor of Biblical Counseling at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this episode, we'll be addressing the problem of pluralism. My guest this week is Ben Edwards, Dean of DBTS and Pastor of Discipleship at Inner City Baptist Church. Ben, thanks for joining us again. Glad to be here. Whenever we want to understand an issue, I think it's helpful to define it. So how would you define pluralism? Yeah, I'd want to begin by by talking about two related ideas um, and, and making sure we're, we're distinguishing pluralism from those. So, so one, I'd say, is religious diversity. A religious diversity is basically saying there are a bunch of different religions out there. Uh, sometimes it's combined with saying, and it's actually good for societies to have religious diversity, not to have one state religion or, or one um, religion in place. That's, that's healthy for a society. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pluralism today. That's a different belief system. A, a second one is inclusivism. Inclusivism is, is basically the idea of saying Christianity is true and Jesus Christ is the only Savior, but people outside of Christianity can be saved as long as they are sincere and faithful and following Christ in their own religion. Um, there's problems with that, uh, but that's not what we're talking about today either. That's not pluralism. Pluralism is really uh, the idea of saying all the religions— uh, are more or less talking about the same thing. Uh, religions, uh, sometimes the illustration is given that they're, they're different paths up the same mountain. And at the bottom of the mountain, you know, it's broader. Maybe, relig- maybe Christianity is on the east side and uh, Buddhism is on the west side. And so down here, it looks like they're very different. But as you move up the mountain, you get close to the top, you realize, well, really, they're all the same thing. That's when they're meeting up there. They're all uh, really talking about the same uh, essential truths, the same basic truths. Um, a quote here from the uh, uh, philosopher and teacher of religion, Swami Sivananda. He says, uh, the fundamentals or essentials of all religions are the same. The difference, uh, there is difference only in the non-essentials. And so that's, they're all the same thing because they're all the same ethically. They all teach, you know, be kind to each other, uh, pursue justice. And so they're all, they're all teaching more or less the same thing. And, and so in, in pluralism, there, there is at least an opportunity to say, well, you know, maybe one religion is better than another because this religion doesn't really help you not to be self-centered. This religion is better at that. But that's really what all religions are about. They're just helping you to become less self-centered, more focused on others. And all religions are ultimately talking about the same reality. And that's that's what the language they're kind of use, reality, as opposed to God, because not every religion necessarily believes in a God um, or any God. Some have multiple gods, some have no gods. Um, but they'd say it's all the same ultimate reality. And it's behind all of them. And an, an illustration that's sometimes used uh, as well to, to talk about this idea is you, you have some blind men who happen to stumble upon an elephant. And the, the first blind man, you know, grabs the leg and says, oh, an elephant's like a tree trunk. And, and the second blind man grabs the elephant's ear and says, no, an elephant's like a fan. And someone else grabs the trunk and says, no, the elephant's like a snake. And someone else has the side of the elephant. No, it's like a wall. And, and, and the idea is this is what all the different religions are talking about. So sometimes it sounds as if they're talking about different things, but they're all really talking about the same ultimate reality. They're, they're seeing parts of the truth 
And as pluralists, we come to understand, let's not fight between these things. Let's realize everyone is getting partial perspective. Let's put it all together to get the fuller reality. That That's really what pluralism is. Hmm. So from that, uh, I, I could see some potential problems. So, But can you help us identify what those are for us as Christians? Yeah, well, I, I'd say um, the, the central problem is that Christianity is not pluralist. Christianity says uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is what's uh, typically called exclusive. Um, I mentioned inclusive earlier. Inclusive would be the idea, well, all religions, uh, people can be saved in other religions, as long as they're saved in Christianity. Pluralism saying all religions, you know, have validity because they're all talking about the same thing. Traditional Christianity says, no, 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 only Christ is the Savior. He's the only way. And if you believe anything else, if you follow anything else, you're lost. And so that's that's the big tension between these two. The uh, reason it matters for us today is we live in a society that's increasingly relativistic and pluralistic. Uh, with the the air we breathe is moral relativism. Uh, some of that's because uh, most people aren't really grounded in religious teachings anymore. Growing up, they're they're not. Uh, they don't go to catechism classes. They aren't in churches or religious institutions. Growing up, and, and actually in the schools, they're taught uh, moral truths are actually not truths. They're opinions. Religious truths aren't truths, they're opinions. Uh, you might have scientific facts, maybe economic facts, but but not um, moral or religious facts. And so that's why uh, I find one of the most common interactions I've had with people when I, I worked for several years at Wayne State University, we, we have uh, guys from uh, um, our ministry go down and interact with students there regularly still. And it's very common to have someone say, well, I'm a Christian but I don't believe that I should force my religion on anyone else. I don't believe I should tell my Muslim friends they're wrong. Everyone just needs to find a faith that works for them. And that's just the air we breathe. And so as pastors, as Christians, we're going to be dealing with people who have bought into some aspects of relativism and pluralism. And so we have to think about it and address it. Yeah, so what would make a person, I guess, why would there be an appeal for kind of a pluralistic approach to religion? Why, why do people buy into that? Yeah, and that's, I think, an important question to ask because usually people don't massively believe something uh, because it seems crazy to them. Uh, there, there's some reason why it, it seems like, yeah, this makes sense. In fact, it's actually good. And so I, I want to just maybe consider three reasons why pluralism appeals to people today. I think probably the first one is it claims to be the answer to religious intolerance and oppression. Um, you have, in history, uh, certainly a lot of conflict between different religions. Uh, we, we had a podcast recently talking about the you know injustices, including the Crusades and, and the wars that happened uh, between different religious beliefs. And so if you've ever seen the coexist bumper stickers or signs, that's what this is about, right? All these different religions, let's not fight. Let's just coexist with each other because ultimately we all believe the same thing. Let's not fight. We, we believe the same thing. Uh, a second reason why a lot of people, uh, I think, uh, see pluralism as a good option is because they believe that religion is uh, a phrase that's used sometimes. It's ineffable. Basically, it can't really be described. It's outside of our comprehension. It's not the kind of thing that we can uh, measure and, and look at like we could scientifically. And so it's outside the realm of science. And so it's, we can't have certainty. So, so Gandhi, for example, said this one time, uh, 
in the realm of the political and social and economic, we can be sufficiently certain to convert. But in the realm of the religion, there's not sufficient certainty to convert anybody, and therefore there can be no conversions in religion. So you can argue all you want to try to convince someone of your uh, social agenda, what you think would be the best economic policy, uh, how, how society should be structured, because we can look at that, we can measure that, we can decide which one's better. But in religion, we can't. That's the argument. And so therefore, let's not fight about it. Let's just kind of get along. And then a third aspect is, if I, I mentioned earlier, religious diversity. We do have religious diversity. And increasingly, people know that and are aware of that. They have neighbors, they have classmates, they have coworkers who aren't Christian. And it's really hard for them to think, well, this, you know, she's a good person. He's a really kind person. That can't be that they're actually condemned and lost. And so maybe it's better for us just to, to kind of say, hey, you have your belief, I have my belief. Or, or Wilfred Cantrell Smith, a, a teacher of religion, which a lot of uh, teachers of world religions push a kind of pluralism. Uh, he said this in his book, Religious Diversity. It is morally not possible actually to go out into the world and say to devout, intelligent, fellow human beings, we are saved and you are damned. Or we believe that we know God and we are right, and you believe that you know God and you're totally wrong. And so a lot of people hear that and say, exactly. And so I won't do that. Instead, I'm going to em embrace this pluralistic kind of mindset. Yeah, you do see this in different aspects of life, work, politics, that in order to accomplish a specific goal, we have to set aside some of our differences in order to, to, to accomplish that. And so, yeah, you could see how someone would look at, at religion and saying, this is actually a hindrance, like an exclusive religion is a hindrance to us moving forward as, as humanity. Earlier, you mentioned that we kind of live in the, we, we kind of uh, breathe the air of relativism. Uh, would you see that as the same as pluralism or, or would that be different? In some ways, they, they bleed into each other quite a bit. And I think probably the average person hasn't thought carefully and deeply enough about these kinds of things to really distinguish between the two. Technically, I think they're different. Uh, I mentioned earlier pluralism. Every religion ultimately leads up the same mountain. In relativism, every religion has its own mountain um, because there is no one reality that they're all pointing to. It's just you know everyone has its own reality. And so um, in that sense, it's – it's not really a problem if religions disagree with each other because they're not talking about the same thing. Well, as pluralism it comes along and says, no, they actually are all talking about the same thing. Relativism in our culture tends to allow pluralism a, a place of coming in and saying, okay, well, they're all teaching the same thing. Um, and so, as I said, most people probably have some aspects they believe about religion that are purely relativistic, others that it would fall into really more of this idea of pluralism, um, but they are tied together, uh, even if we could in some ways distinguish them. Yeah. So then what problems might you identify with relativism then? Yeah. And, and that's something that certainly we could talk a lot more about, um, but in, in brief, the ultimate problem with the relativistic approach to religion or the idea that says it doesn't matter if religions agree or not agree. It's just they're, they're all true for themselves, true in themselves. Uh, that, that that approach to relativism never – it just crumbles under itself. It, it can never sustain itself 
because it's, it's what's called a self-defeating belief. It's self-defeating because the moment you say there's no truth, you've now made a truth claim. And the question immediately arises, well, is that true? Well, then there is some truth, and so therefore it's false. And that's really where relativism ends up. Inevitably, it always comes to this position of uh, there's no universal truth except for the truth that there's no universal truth. And so it ends up falling in on itself. And, and in relativism, you actually have no grounds in which you can condemn anything. Uh, I, I like to to say in, in a purely relativistic perspective and, and relativism in general, relativism in religion, there would be no difference between feeding hungry people or feeding hungry people to lions uh, because there's no value. There's no objective moral values. There's nothing in which we can determine what is good or what is not good. And that's why most people aren't 100% relativistic. They, they, they fall into a kind of relativism because, again, that's the air in which we breathe. That's what people tend to emphasize. They tend to say there's, there's no moral values, and yet everyone has some moral values. They tend to say there is no truth when it comes to morality or religion, but then they take some stands and saying things like child sacrifice would not be permissible or something like that. They would take some stands in saying this is not okay for your religion to hold or to believe, um, even while at the same time at the other side of their mouth saying, well, everyone can just decide for themselves. That's helpful. As the, uh, so let's uh, circle back to pluralism and, and talk about, uh, is that a, kind of a new phenomenon or, or have Christians had to deal with, with that in the past? I think it's important, first of all, to recognize, I mentioned earlier that Christianity is exclusive, that that's not new. It's not as though in the last couple hundred years, Christianity has become an exclusive religion. Uh, if you look at the, the New Testament, Jesus, John 14, uh, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Or John in 1 John 5.11, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so from the very beginning, Christianity was an exclusive religion. And as well from the very beginning, opposition to Christianity because it was exclusive occurred. Uh, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, in many ways reflected a little bit of the pluralistic society we're in today. Uh, Robert Louis Wilkin in his book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, talked about this dynamic. He said, the Christians were seen as religious fanatics, self-righteous outsiders, arrogant innovators who thought only their beliefs were true. How presumptuous, thought the Romans, that the Christians considered themselves alone religious. As a Roman official aptly remarked at the trial of the Silithan martyrs, we too are a religious people. And you hear those attacks and you think, that's the kind of attacks we hear today. You know, who are these Christians? They're, they're self-righteous outsiders. They think they're the only ones who have the truth. And in many ways, the, the Romans and Greeks would have been happy to have said, oh, Jesus is God? Well, great. Let's make a temple for him too. We'll put him right next to Mars. We'll put him right next to uh, Diana. But the Christians were saying, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're not saying add him to your pantheon of gods. We're saying he's the only God. And that's really where the conflict came up. And so it's not as though Christians at some point in time said, you know what, we're really going to put ourselves in a better position if we, if we tell everyone we're the only true religion and no one else is true. And so let's start doing that. From the very beginning, that's what they taught. And so today when we say 
Christianity is the only true religion, we're saying the same thing Jesus said. We're saying the same thing the early church said. We're saying the same thing Christians have said throughout the history of Christianity. Yeah, that's important to see Jesus came with that kind of exclusivity. Uh, so what are some tensions that you see with pluralism? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier some of the, the arguments that, that people uh, would use, some of the things that appeal to pluralism. And in a sense, some of the tensions are it doesn't do it. You know, one of the reasons I think many people kind of move towards pluralism is they want to be tolerant. And they say, well, pluralism is going to allow us to be tolerant. But pluralism doesn't actually lead to tolerance, in part because I think pluralism is a fiction. Um, you can say as much as you want. All religions believe the same thing. All religions teach the same thing, but they don't. And so you're, you're basically creating a, a, a statement of faith, a hope that all religions would teach the same thing, and therefore there would be tolerance. But I think kind of smuggled into this idea is that pluralism leads to tolerance, is that certainty of truth is actually the problem. The reason people are intolerant is that they are certain they have the truth and other people don't. And so if we are uncertain, then we'll actually be more tolerant. And you see a little bit of that even in Gandhi's quote I mentioned earlier. Well, we can have certainty in, certain, you know, in, in these areas to convert, but not in religion. And so if we are certain that we have the truth, others don't, we're going to be intolerant. But the problem isn't, if I can say this way, it's not in the realm of ideas. It's the realm of the will and the heart. Uh, the problem isn't that I say I'm right and you're wrong. The problem is if I look down on you because of that. The problem is if I hate you because of that. Um, and, and in a sense, I need to be certain that I shouldn't hate you. I need to be certain that you are someone made in the image of God. You are someone that has dignity. I need to be certain that violence is not the way to convince people of what I believe. And so actually I need certainty. I need truth. If we're actually going to have tolerance, we don't need less truth. We, we need the right truths if we're actually going to have tolerance. A second issue with pluralism is it actually is its own new religion. As much as it's saying, hey, we're just embracing all the religions out there, it's actually redefining all these religions into a new religion. I, I quoted earlier from Swami Sivananda, the fundamentals or essentials of all religions are the same. The difference is only in the non-essentials. Well, he goes on to say, well, the apparent differences in religion are due to a misconception or misconstruction of the long-forgotten truth of the Vedas on which they are ultimately founded. And so essentially what he's saying is all religions are the same because all of them are ultimately Hinduism. And that's really where pluralism ends up going. It ends up going to say, oh, all religions are teaching the same thing, this actually new belief that I have. And so I, I mentioned um, pluralists uh, talk about the ineffable nature of religion, the fact that it's it's you can't quite describe it. It's kind of out there. There's this ultimate reality that's out there. Well, that's nothing like the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is certainly beyond our complete comprehension, but we can say certain things about him. We can say certain things are true. We can say he is wise. We can say he is sovereign. We can say he is loving and merciful. And, and so there are certain things we can actually say about him. Pluralism comes along and says, well, you can't really know what ultimate reality is. And then as well, pluralism changes the, the goal of religion to a purely moralistic and ethical approach. So John Hick is, is one of the, the big proponents of uh, pluralism coming from a Christian background, really promoting pluralism among Christian thinkers. He, he said this in one of his works, 
if we define salvation as being forgiven and accepted by God because of Jesus' death on the cross, then it becomes a tautology that Christianity alone knows and is able to preach the source of salvation. So, so basically, obviously, Christianity is the only way to be saved if being saved means being forgiven and accepted by God because of Jesus' death on the cross. But, he goes on, if we define salvation as an actual human change, a gradual transformation from natural self-centeredness with all the human evils that flow from this, to a radically new orientation centered in God and manifested in the fruit of the Spirit, then it seems clear that salvation is taking place within all of the world religions, taking place, so far as we can tell, to more or less the same extent. And I hear that, and I think it'd be similar to me saying, well, you know, if we define the ability to read as being able to look at words and sentences on a page and understanding them, then only those who have that ability can read, and only those who are helping people gain that ability are teaching people how to read. But if instead we define being able to read as the ability to enjoy a good story or be surprised at a twist ending or, or cry during an emotional scene in the movie, then almost anyone can read. And, and all the things we do in life are helping teach us how to read. I think the response would be that say, but that's crazy talk. Obviously, we know what we mean when we're talking about what, is, what does it mean to read. And, and, and if you talk to a Christian and say, so if we define salvation as being forgiven and accepted by God because of Jesus' death on the cross, I'd say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good definition to me. In fact, it seems like the biblical definition. And so, yeah, if you now change what the Bible says about salvation to what you think it should be, well, then all religions teach this. But that's not what salvation is. And so not all religions actually teach this. And, and related to that, it, it ends up ignoring the law of non-contradiction. Uh, I, I found this generally to be true, that usually the person who says all, religion, all religions teach the same thing have very little idea of what any religion teaches. Because the moment you actually begin to study what the religion teaches, it becomes pretty clear they, they have massive differences and not just differences, if we can say, at the base of the mountain. They have differences of what the mountain's even about. Uh, Christianity and Buddhism have a whole different understanding of what reality is about and a whole different approach to how, how are we going to, to deal with the problem of our world? What's the right path to get to this solution? Christianity says our problem is our sin. We've rebelled against God. Uh, we need forgiveness. We need a new nature so that we can be made right with God again. Buddhism says, well, the problem is we have certain desires. We long for... Um, permanent, uh, temporal things to be permanent, and that leads to suffering. And so we need to follow the Noble Eightfold Path that will allow us to then uh, leave this life of, of continual reincarnation and, and achieve nirvana, which is a kind of extinguishing um, out of the, this world. Those are vastly different understandings of what's going on here. And, and it's not simply enough to say, well, but really you're talking about the same thing. That's a faith statement. Uh, if, if, I, if I mention the, you know, the people who usually say religion teach the same thing don't understand religions, the ones who have studied them and said they teach the same thing, it's just wish casting. They're simply going to pick and choose the things they really want from the religions and say, well, see, they match up on this. And so they're creating a new religion. They're ignoring the fact that religions do teach different things. And uh, I think as well, one of the appeals of, of pluralism uh, related to the idea of, of, of tolerance is it seems a lot more humble. I said, you know, it's really uncomfortable to tell someone that seems like a really good person, seems like a really smart person, you're wrong. And so pluralism comes along and seems to say, well, okay, let's not do that. But the problem is they are doing it. 
They just don't realize they're doing it. Because a pluralist, when a pluralist says no religion has all the truth, the only way you can know no religion has all the truth is if you have all of the truth. It's, it's been illustrated this way. If you think about those blind men who come upon the elephant, the only way you know each blind man is having a part of the elephant is because you're not blind. And so, in fact, a pluralist is making one of the most arrogant claims he could possibly make. All of you religions think you have the truth, but I actually have discovered the truth beyond all of that. As a Christian, I, I can't even make that kind of a claim. I'm not saying I've figured out the truth. I'm telling you this is what God told me. This is what Jesus told me. I'm following what he said. I'm not coming along and saying, well, let me tell all of you really what you should believe and do. That's a much more arrogant claim. That's a much more bold claim to be able to make. And I'm not making that kind of claim as a Christian. So I think it would be helpful if you responded to some objections that a pluralist might raise against traditional Christianity. So I'm going to shoot these at you as if I'm the pluralist and you're the Christian. So Which I am pretend, a Christian. <laughs> pretend that you're a Christian for right now. Uh, it's pretty arrogant. So the first one, it's pretty arrogant for you to say that you have the truth and everyone else is wrong. And and I think, again, there's there's a reason behind that objection. There are some people who are very arrogant in making those kinds of claims. That that sometimes believing you are right and others are wrong can lead you to be arrogant. But I don't think it has to. And in fact, one of the ways we know that is that objection is itself a claim of truth. You're saying it's pretty arrogant to say you have the truth. And, and in doing so, you're, you're saying this is the truth. It's arrogant to say you have the truth. And I'd say, well, are you being arrogant right now and telling me that? I don't think you are because I don't think it's necessarily arrogant to say you have the truth. It could be arrogant, but it doesn't have to be arrogant. The problem, again, isn't claiming to have the truth. The problem is what you do with it. Okay. I'm convinced. Let me give you a couple more objections. Uh, it's fine for you to believe whatever you want, but don't try to push your view on others. Yeah, and again, that's that's tied in with the the kind of objection of, hey, you know what? These are really smart people themselves. These are really intelligent people themselves. How could you possibly tell them they're wrong? And yet again, you're telling me I'm wrong. Because what do I believe? I believe I should tell people kindly, lovingly, graciously, but firmly that Jesus is the only way. And you're coming and telling me, no, you're wrong to think that. What you should think instead is what I think. Because I think we shouldn't push your view on someone else. But what am I actually doing right now? Trying to push my view on you. And so again, I'm actually undermining the very thing I'm claiming, couching it as if I'm the more humble person. Couching it as if I'm the person who's not as proud and arrogant, but actually being as proud and arrogant as I'm accusing you of being. Okay, so what do you make of this one? It's unloving to tell someone that only Jesus can save them. And again, there's a reason that objection comes up, in part because there are people who very unlovingly tell people they're going to hell. Uh, you think about the Westboro Baptist Church, which is really just a cult, you know, going with signs to funerals of, of, of people and, and, and laying these things out. And so, yes, certainly there are very unloving ways in which you can tell someone uh, that only Jesus can save them. But if it's true, it's actually the only loving thing to do. Uh, if, if I think that a, there's a growth on your body and it's cancerous, 
I think it'd be pretty unloving for me to say, you know what, if I tell him that it's cancer, he's not going to really like that, and so I'm just not going to say anything. Now, there certainly would probably be a little overboard if I drugged you and took you to the doctor or, or knocked you out in some way. But, but if, um, if I urged you, if I encouraged you, if, if I gave you information to support my opinion, I don't think that'd be unloving in any way. In fact, I think that would be the most loving thing I could do. And, and that's where I'm coming from as a Christian. I'm, I'm coming saying there's something far worse than a cancerous growth on your body. And I'm not forcing you. I'm not trying to fight you. I'm not uh, trying to... Uh, compel you in any way outside of my pleadings, outside of my urgings, outside of maybe arguments I would give to help you to see this. But that's how life works. And, 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 and again, it's actually would be less loving for me if I believe that Jesus is the only way for me not to tell you. Okay. So what about this one? Uh, religious beliefs are really just culturally conditioned. You you wouldn't be a Christian if you were born in Morocco or Cambodia. How would you make of that? Yeah, I think first of all, that kind of argument commits what's called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy says that the source of a position uh, invalidates it, but that's not how, how truth works. Uh, you could have someone who's a liar say something that's true. That doesn't mean it's no longer true just because the liar said it. And so even if I would not be a Christian, if I were born somewhere else, somewhere else, even if it, my, my upbringing, my culture in some way has led me to what I believe, that doesn't change whether or not what I believe is true. But the flip side of that is your people are only pluralists because of where they were born. That the person in Morocco and Cambodia is also not a pluralist because pluralism only resides within our modern secular kind of perspective. And so if I'm wrong because of where I'm born, you're wrong because of where you're born. And I don't think either of us really want to, to land at that kind of a position. We recognize truth isn't bound uh, by, by our circumstances. It actually goes beyond that. So I'm uh, done pretending to be a pluralist. I'm going to ask you one final question on this topic. Um, even if you were convinced that not all religions are the same, why should we view Christianity as the right and true religion? Yeah. And, and I just here want to maybe highlight four things that I think are important to keep in mind as we're, we're thinking about Christianity versus other religions. And the first is to understand we are talking about historical realities. In Christianity, it rises and falls on historical truths. In a sense, we're, we're, not, we're not just evaluating a matter of opinion. I'm not coming to you and, and, and saying, well, you should think about Christianity or you should think about Islam in the same way that I might come and say, well, which is better, Coke or Pepsi? Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're actually saying, did Jesus live? Did he die? Did he rise again? Did God make the world? Uh, is he going to come again and judge the world? These are historical questions that are either true or not true. And so it's not just a matter of opinion. It actually is a matter of historical reality. And that's what we see in Scripture. And I think Christianity is unique in religion, among religions, in that it does focus on historical realities in that way. Most other religions focus a lot more on myths and legends, uh, spiritual things that happen outside of maybe what we have experienced in history. But Christianity is not, not approaching life that way. It's saying there is a God, he made the world, he entered the world, and he's going to judge the world. Uh, a second related point to that is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus was 
did not come and simply say, I'm a teacher, let me show you a better way to live, which is how many religions function. Here's, here's a good teacher. He's going to show you the way. Jesus said, no, I am the way. I'm not giving you a better way to live. I'm telling you, you must come and be united to me. I, I have to be uh, your life and death uh, because of the life I lived and the death that I, I died. And, and I think if Jesus is God in human flesh and he did die to pay for our sins, then pluralism doesn't make any sense. If, if God could say, well, all right, how are people going to come to know me? Well, maybe they can say a few prayers and maybe, you know, live a, a life of self-denial. Maybe they can give alms to the poor. Maybe they can make a trip to a certain location and, and pilgrimage. Or maybe they can trust in my son who dies on the cross. It doesn't make any sense because when Jesus is in the garden, he says, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass for me. And the answer was, it's not possible. This is the only way. And that's why Jesus actually had to die on the cross in order for anyone to be saved. And that makes Christianity, unlike other religions, uh, shows us that we are saved not by being good. We're, we're saved by an alien righteousness, that we and ourselves are sinful. And yet at the very same time as we are the chief of sinners, we are completely righteous in Jesus Christ. And I think that understanding of salvation as well helps us then to, to think about other people differently. I mentioned the problem isn't that I think I'm right and you're wrong. The problem is what I think about you in light of that. And there's a tendency then to be a bit, a bit arrogant. I've got the truth. And, and in most religions, it does lead to arrogance because I lived a better life than you. I've gr gained greater insight into the world. I, I, I've achieved a state of enlightenment that you haven't. And so I am better than you. But in Christianity, that's not true. I'm no better than you. I'm, I'm as much of a sinner as you are. In fact, I might even be more of a sinner than you are. I'm not saved because of who I am. I'm only saved because of what God has done. And, and you could be saved too because it's not on the basis of my achievement. There's no room for boasting. It's by grace we've been saved and not of works. And so it doesn't surprise me to find, if I can say this way, my neighbor who's a really kind person, who's a really good, humanly speaking, morally person, uh, and, and say, well, he's not a Christian. How could he live this life? And the answer is, well, because none of us are Christians because of the life we live. We're Christians because of the life Jesus lived. Which then leads to the, the final point I'd want to emphasize, and that's the fact that we actually have a crucified Savior. We have someone who died for his enemies, who's at the very heart of what I believe to be true about this world, about reality. And, and I've been told to follow in his footsteps, to follow his example, that I am called to love my enemies because Jesus loved his enemies. And I think if you look at the historical reality of kind of what happened, uh, if you look at you know, the Romans and, and the Greeks, I mentioned they were a pretty pluralistic religious system. They were also a pretty brutal uh, system when it came to dealing with the disadvantaged, the poor, the oppressed. Christianity is a very exclusive religious system, and yet they were very warm and welcoming of the poor and the oppressed. When, when Romans would throw their children at the city gate to, to be left to suffer and die, Christians would come and take them in. When people were, were fleeing from towns because of sicknesses and plagues, Christians were going in because 
there's this recognition that I'm called to love my enemies. I'm called to love these people because these are people made in God's image. These are people that God loves. And therefore, I need to demonstrate that same kind of care and love. I have no reason to be arrogant. I have no reason to hate others. Uh, I, I'm called instead at the very heart of what I claim to be true to express a love and concern for others. Well, thank you for helping us think through this, Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating or review so that others can discover us more easily. You can find out more about our podcast or about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. We look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.